Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for watching if you're over on YouTube and Spotify. This episode's a re-release. Unfortunately, this week, Richard McSpadden, the guest on this episode, he was killed in a general aviation accident. He was a former Air Force fighter pilot. He was the commander and leader of the Air Force Thunderbirds and most recently leading AOPA's Air Safety Institute. I thought it'd be good to hear his voice again, to hear some of the stories, a little bit about his legacy and what he was doing and had done in the aviation world. For those that knew SPAD, hopefully this brings back some good memories. For those who never crossed paths with him, I think you'll hear you know, some tremendous words from an incredible individual who had done a lot and was still doing a lot in the aviation world. To say the aviation world has a void right now is an understatement. He'll definitely be missed. My thoughts and prayers go out to his family and his friends as they deal with this trying time. I also have put up his There I Was story. That's something that's normally only for subscribers to the podcast. But again, I think it's good to hear more of his voice and more of his story, especially in a time like this. So with that being said, let's get back into the episode with Richard McSpadden. Sir, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Happy to have you on here and looking forward to chatting just a little bit. Likewise, John. Looking forward to sharing some stories with you. Well, I like to, and I know you probably got a few few stories, but I'd like to kind of jump back to where it all began for you. Can you give me just a 30 to 90 second elevator pitch of who you are, kind of what got you involved in aviation and what you're doing today? Yeah, my start was uh, my dad, when he was in his early 40s, my mom gave him a Father's Day gift of a flight lesson. And uh, he, he took that lesson. I was in college at the time. And he just loved it. He immediately took to flying. When we were kids growing up, we'd fly model airplanes with him and go to air shows. And so I saw how much he was enjoying it. And I was in college looking for a career. And I started flying also. And then pretty soon thereafter, went into Air Force ROTC and then, you know, kind of went on from there. But but it all started in GA. And before that, it all started with building models and flying. Remember those little hand airplanes you fly around with a handle? Yeah. And you turn around circle <laughs> yeah. yeah we, we and awesome. we crashed more of those airplanes <laughs> yeah. you can't find those nowadays i forgot about those man that'd be yeah. fun to be standing in the yard just zipping around with my son get a man, kick those out were of hard to fly you know yeah. they, they, were, they were very pitch sensitive and then you got to move too like you know if you know, obviously you're spinning around yeah. in a circle constantly yeah. like getting dizzy that thing i forgot about those yeah. Have to, have yeah, to go Google and see if I can find one now for my son. Yeah, I don't even know if they make them. It's a it's a lost art. I yeah, no kidding. Well, you so you ended up doing ROTC, and uh, we talked before we hit record. I went to Georgia Tech. You went to Georgia. Uh, as we roll on the football season here, it's probably another painful football season for me. Um, probably <laughs> a good football season for you. But uh, did you do the full four years, or did you get the flying lesson and then say, "Hey, you know what? I think I want to go." maybe try the Air Force thing. What was that kind of connection? Yeah, I came in kind of late. I transferred into Georgia. I was a junior college guy from okay. Panama City, Florida. And I transferred in as a junior, decided I wanted to fly for the Air Force. And they said, well, you're going to take, you know, basically four years worth of ROTC. So I had to double up and then I had to stay a year after I graduated from college to finish my ROTC classes. Okay. And then obviously you got a pilot training slot out of ROTC and then jump into pilot training. How was pilot training for you? Yeah. You know, pilot training was intense. Um, it was, I forget how many people were in a class, maybe 70 of us or so. And the attrition rate was pretty high back then. So it was by far for all of us, the most intense thing we'd ever done. And, you know, this was during an area in an era where Everyone knew your performance. Your class ranking was public knowledge. And when it came time for assignment night, they'd pretty much just rank you by the class and they'd put up the uh, airplanes and you would just choose basically and just go by your rank and, you know, you choose your airplane. Uh, I think it's still a little differently now. Yeah. Well, like I've talked, uh, I did an episode on UPT 2.5. My buddy Motor, who was a Thunderbird, he's now running that division as far as innovating UPT and how it's going to go. 
which seems interesting. I, I've talked about this too, and this is, I think, a thread to pull on because in the fighter pilot world, there are no secrets. And if you're playing, I have a secret that's going to catch up to you and be a bad thing. But that's one of the things about yeah. being open, sharing the knowledge. Hey, if you, everyone makes mistakes and fessing up and owning it. And I do think like when I, so I was a fape, you didn't publicize how, what, how students were doing. Guys could kind of gauge based on the bro network and, Again, kind of sharing just how they did and kind of figure out where everyone fit. But still in the fighter squadron, when you take your weapons test or whatever it might be, all that is publicized and that's posted outside the vault and you can see how guys perform. I personally found that as a motivating factor because you didn't want to be the guy at the bottom of the list. Tremendously motivated, yeah. And so what's what's your thought on, because now it kind of feels like maybe it's kumbaya is not the right phrase there right but it's like a softer gentler like hey it's going to be okay yeah is there a blend in your opinion or what do you think is kind of the the best way going about doing it yeah yeah you know that i'm with you it was it was incredibly motivating because we were all very competitive to begin with and you wanted to be at the top uh, but you certainly didn't want to be at the bottom uh, and because of that the range from top to bottom in the squadrons i was in wasn't very much you know because we were all pressing pretty hard. And uh, to your point, um, it, everything we did was public knowledge. And as you remember, if you made a mistake, you know, the first thing you had to do is at the very next squadron safety meeting, stand up and say, here's what I did. Here's what led up to it. Here's how it won't happen again. I was just part of the culture. You used to right. do that. That, that was fantastic learning for all of us and motivation because you didn't want to be the guy standing up in front of your squadron and talking about stupid stuff you did. Yeah, we had so we had an incident in our squadron, and you know, leave names out of this obviously, but we had, we had a commander that I don't think he was very well thought of. Um, we a lot of guys viewed him as this was like a anything that could happen was only a potential hindrance to his career progression because if something bad yeah. happens in your squadron, that's going to reflect upon him and how he moves along. So that was kind of the general view, but where this uh, ties into is that culture of someone messing up in a sortie during the week, doing something buffoonerous and then standing up on Friday in weapons academics or in the pilot meeting and saying what they did. And maybe they were, maybe they were grounded for a week, had to do, you know, desk duty or whatever it is, just kind of pay their penance. Uh, It, it transitioned more to a punitive culture or one, that information wouldn't get out there. And to the fact that you know, you're very well uh, familiar with Nellis um, and the VFR transition taking off, we had a wingman who did it at night for a red flag. He was, yeah, you know, he got left by the three ship. He stepped to a spare, stepped to a spare, and then he does that departure at night. The was it the flex? I'm blanking on now. That sounds right. That sounds yeah. right. That's a good so memory. He, I think it was the flex departure. Yeah, he goes out there. He does that VFR departure gets. Uh, Rapcon gets an altitude warning on him. Like he almost hits the mountain doing this like day Man. only departure. Yeah. And no one heard about it in the squadron until it kind of slowly trickled through the bro network. But in my mind, I think a lot of our minds were like, Hey, this is something that this wingman did that no one was going to talk about that could be beneficial for someone else who I mean, you know, we had five other young young guys out of uh, the B course. Like, what's to say they wouldn't end up in the same situation? But it became where, hey, instead of doing that, now you're going to get a Q2 or Q3. And for those listening, I don't know, that's in the Air Force. When you do your formal check ride every year, you get a Q1, means a pass, like good to go. Q2 might do some retraining. And Q3, that's a failed check ride, essentially. And a commander can hand those out. So we started seeing that happen, which definitely, I think, changed the culture oh. and the safety culture in my mind, yeah. where instead of standing up there and saying, hey, I messed up, but now for fear of retribution, I, you wouldn't, yeah. you'd play I have a secret because you might get Q3'd. So yeah. what, do you, I mean, the importance, I think, of that culture and being able to fess up and say things, that translates throughout all of aviation, I really think. It does. It does. You know, one of the one of the foundational things of a good safety culture program is the ability to report things or to discuss uh, problems or issues that you have without fear of retribution. Because all of us make honest mistakes. We all do. 
And one of the biggest improvements I've seen in, in general aviation safety is the FAA came out with this program they call the Compliance Program, maybe about seven or eight years ago, somewhere in that time frame, where they shifted from a mindset that if they found out you made a mistake, they were going towards enforcement to where they're really more interested in compliance now, meaning if you had a problem, then they would send you back through training. A lot of it would be training we provide in the Air Safety Institute because their focus was not so much we want to wrap you on the knuckles and come after you, but we want to make sure you understand how to comply and what the problem was. That has had a tremendous impact on GA safety. And just the culture now between controllers and pilots is so much better than it used to be years ago. So, and that I know I want to jump into your Air Force career and talk about because obviously a very distinguished career, but what you're doing now is really kind of bridging the gap from your military career and all the things you did flying fast jets and then your love of GA and kind of blending safety. Can you tell me just a little bit what capacity you're doing now and kind of how that ties in? Yeah, sure. So the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, AOPA, which I work for, is the largest uh, advocacy group for general aviation in the world, really. Um, and we're one of the top 50 advocacy groups for any industry in the U.S. for anything. If you think about that for a minute, about, yes, you yes. know, soybeans and petroleum <laughs> and all the people that have advocacy groups. And we in general aviation are one of the top 50. Um, so we are, that's really our focus is we protect general aviation, grow it, and keep it safe. And we've been doing that for 80 years. So my job is to run the Air Safety Institute. Everything we do is free to the public, and uh, our whole job is to help try to keep GA safe. And we got about a dozen people that work in the Air Safety Institute, all instructors, not all, but a, a lot of instructors. And uh, anyway, it's a tremendous, I love it. It's tremendous work. The, and to uh, your point, yeah, the blend is, sorry, I think I stepped down. The, the blend there is, I see this all the time. People will come out of the military or out of uh, airlines and they'll think, ah, I know how to make general aviation safer. We'll just make it just like the military or the airlines. <laughs> and that doesn't work for a lot of reasons. We, You could do that and you would just completely kill GA. Yeah. <laughs> because GA is recreational. GA is people flying part-time or, you know, in some cases for business. But you have to, so the trick to me is you cherry pick the things from the military or from the airlines that will work and you understand the culture around GA and blending those two is really the, the balance that we try to work. Which I imagine is a lot. But yeah, it, it's just coming from like the Air Force, right? It's like if it's not written down, like you can't do it uh, versus GA. There's a, there's a lot. I mean, people are landing in, whether they're talking about landing on a grass strip, landing on a lake, uh yeah, it's just, it's a whole yeah. other world for a guy it's who's a only done It's a fascinating world. And I tell you, John, you, I have met some incredibly talented GA pilots that were all self-taught. Um, you know, we had the luxury of some training that was very structured and one, one step was laid out in front of us after the other, right? And so we didn't have to think a lot about the training we needed. That was provided for us. All we had to do was execute. Right. Not that that was always easy, but, you know, that's what we had to do. These guys, they have to go out and figure out what training they need and where to get it best and who they can trust. And some of the pilots I've met are incredibly talented pilots in GA, and I've learned a, a lot from them. It, you know, just for example, if you remember, I tell this story all the time. If When I flew F-15s, if you taxied out to into runway and you had a hydraulic leak, a whole team of people would come up to your jet and they would look at it and they would count the number of drops per minute and they would decide based on that number, you know, if it was less than, I don't know, 12, you could go. If it was more than 12, you had, you couldn't. In general aviation, all of that is on the pilot. The GA pilot is chief of maintenance, chief of operations, chief of dispatch, chief of finance, right. chief of inspector. <laughs> you know, all of that is judgment that you have to figure out on your own in the GA world. And so it's just interesting that the people who fly for recreation in part-time have so much more judgment than those of us who did it every day for a living. All of that stuff, the weather we could fly in, right. the equipment we could fly with, who we could fly with, 
All that was proceduralized. We didn't have any input in that. It was hard go, no go stuff. Right. That's a really good point and a way to look at it too, because obviously the challenge, I think flying fighters is the mission, right? Which can be very complex and you're going a lot of jets. But as you said, like, you know, there's a top three who's sitting there, he's looking at the weather and like you said, it's a hard yes, no, whether either you have it or you don't supervisor of flying he's out there he's monitoring you know if thunderstorms are rolling in he's going to add alternates and you know you're it's in the pages of how much gas you need like again it's kind of black and white when it comes down to it in structure and again it is comp it's complex but um like you said that, that is an interesting aspect in the way of looking at it if, if you're just a plane owner or if you're just a pilot who's renting a plane or however you're flying around you're making all those decisions or having to make all those decisions. And again, there's a lot of variables and dynamics that you're balancing there. And AOPA, I mean, so I'm an AOPA member, but I'll be honest, I got the AOP membership when I got out of the uh, military. One, I want to get back into GA to join that and EAA just to have some information. But also, since I do fly for the airlines, it was a new realization for me uh, with my class one medical that Hey, that could go away any day. So I was interested in the pilot protection services. Yeah. Like, should I ever yeah. need it? Now I have people who are smarter than me that can help me kind of guide through this process. Um, and kind of the parallel too to kind of jump back into aviation. So I was teaching one of my crew chiefs to fly and assess oh. them while while we're okay. at Shaw. Yeah. And I was like, hey, if you can find us a plane that will let that the, the insurance will let me instruct on you instruct in, let's go do it. And the FBO right there at Shaw is great. Let's go out there and fly. I was like, hey, look, I can teach you to fly. Like, I can teach you stalls and falls and how to landing. But the one part that I'm, and I'm still not comfortable with today is there's just a completely different set of rules or, and I'd say they parallel Air Force and, and Navy regulations. But I was like, when it comes to weather and things like that, it's just different that I haven't, I know the Air Force book. I don't know the FAA book. Granted, I've learned it since then, but. Uh, there's just a lot to know out there. There's a lot of information. So having these resources is huge. Yeah. And I think you're really wise as a professional pilot to do that PPS service. And it's really not just a plug I'm making for it, yeah. but I forget how much it costs, but with membership and that pilot protection service, if you're a professional pilot, that's just the first call you make in anything is you call the AOPA lawyers. You don't talk, you know, these brasher warnings where, controllers will say hey call this number when you land we always you know teach our um guys in our pps don't ever do that you 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 have the lawyers protecting you now right you call us right. we'll help you make that call that's that's pretty pretty cheap insurance for your ticket really i think yeah i agree and that's honestly why i got it because you know i guess the realization like class one medical and then starting to do some ga flying because you have legal services that go along with it and again, not know, like I know Air Force and now my part 121 rules and things like that. There's still a lot that goes along with it. But when you're now going to the airlines, you have a union, that's part of like the union lawyers, same deals. If something happens while you're flying a company airplane, they want you to talk to them first and then they're going to provide the guidance that you need to, you know, protect your ticket as much as possible. But if you're out yep. bopping around and again, air traffic controller tells you to call this number or just something happens having a resource that's one number away to help guide you through that process i think it's huge and again if you're spending the money on avgas like it's it's you know yeah, it's, it's, it's an it's an afterthought like you just it is it's cheap insurance it really is yeah. yeah otherwise yeah good luck and dealing with it in the moment when that's probably one of the most stressful things you know potentially of what you're having to deal with uh, yeah just having or, uh, you know resources to lean on i think so again not to plug it but again i've had it uh, since i got out of the military just yeah um, yeah me too i i have to buy it i don't get it free as an aop employee and i bought it for my son also who's just starting to fly and starting a career yeah it makes sense so pilot protective service if you again if you can go to aopa.org and, and sign up for it and again i think it's if you don't even do any of the other resources that are there just having that um and peace of mind because there's a lot of, there's a lot of legal legal and medical things out there that can be yeah impact you as a pilot for sure yeah what else so if for the air safety institute what do you think like if if someone is just brand new to this or getting into ga or is a ga pilot 
and you met them, what would you say or recommend to them where to start or you think might be beneficial for them to access some of those resources? Um, you mean for AOPA now or just in general aviation? AOPA and like, I guess what you do and what your team does, if again, if you're just yep. hearing about it for the first time, like what yep. would you recommend people check out? Yeah. Yeah. I think so in the air safety Institute, we have kind of this mantra that says, you know, wherever, whenever, however you consume information, we want to be there with safety information. Our materials access some um, 12 million times a year by people and it's all free. So we have a YouTube channel. We have a podcast called There I Was, free on iTunes and Spotify. Um, we are now on TikTok. Oh, so yeah. we're just about <laughs> anywhere you want to be. And we want to be that nagging voice in the back of your head that just says, you know, we're careful. We don't want to be the safety guy that says you just shouldn't be flying right. today. We want to say, hey, let's think about this. Let's just stop and pause and think about all the aspects that you should factor into your flight today and then make your own decision. And that's kind of part of the GA culture is instead of telling you what to do, it's more, hey, here's some factors you probably ought to think about. You make your decision. Yeah, I've seen you did two breakdown videos, I think, recently that are out on YouTube that I thought were really good. Uh, the midair collision out in Las Vegas. I think there's oh, yeah. two, like back to back. There was, again, yeah. You know, where you're saying, hey, not do this. But I think in that video, some things that stand out, you know, making some assessments. Like, obviously, this person on the radio sounds like they're familiar, knows another individual in this traffic pattern. So you can kind of like, in my mind, I can place myself in those scenarios <laughs> to hopefully not end up in one of those scenarios. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 You're right. That. That's the goal is through what you do. You do the same thing very well on your podcast here is we've learned that storytelling and situational learning is really powerful. So if you can lay it out in a way that a pilot can envision themselves in that scenario and think, what would I do or what should I do? Then it's all, it's not as good, but it's almost as good as the having the experience because you've already thought through it. Right. I, unfortunately, I'm one of those that I usually have to learn the hard way, but not all the time. And it, it is nice when you can, you know, hear an event, a scenario that transpired. And for me, it's usually, it sinks in a little bit better when one of my buddies, or if it's someone that I can relate to, I, you know, another pilot that, and you know what, I could see myself getting pinned yeah. in the, you know, by this thunderstorm or whatever it was and making these decisions that then when you go out, cause now when I like, get placed in a scenario and maybe it's just a safety background i now start like well this is how the accident investigation report's going to read you know they you know were past yeah. you know up late couldn't sleep you know weather was bad you know you're like all right this is how this is how these things always start and then maybe you can intervene to yeah. stop that accident you know from happening. i i have found that to be helpful and i do it the same way you do i guess we just saw so much of that in our careers where i, I don't view an accident and think, oh, you know, stupid pilot trick. I would never do that. Instead, I found it helpful if you think, so there was a pilot in the situation, and in hindsight, with perfect vision now, we can see that was a bad decision. But in the moment, they truly thought they were making the most optimal decision for the best outcome of that flight. So what were the conditions that created that poor decision they made? And that's, to me, that's where the learning comes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, a really good way to look at it. Obviously slightly biased, but I think that's the important thing because I've talked about mishaps on this podcast. I know you've talked about them and we all have friends who are super experienced individuals, masters at the craft that you could probably say, Hey, this guy was the best class or this or that. Um, and then they make a mistake and Again, it's like, well, let's peel back the onion and see what led to that. And there's going to be a lot of different contributing factors that go into it. And ultimately, like, if you don't think it could be you, I'm like, you're you're going to be next. You know, you're just, you're living on borrowed time. Yeah, I, I agree. With, I, I so agree with you. I, I guess that's the perspective I take is I do think it could be me. So I want to learn how to recognize the red flags leading up to, you know, the poor decisions or actions or whatever it is. Absolutely. Well, we've talked a lot safety. I know we'll, we'll mix more of that probably in here as we go along, just based on the backgrounds. But we left 
uh, at pilot training. So pilot training, again, slightly different than I think it is today. And as UPT comes online and things like that, it's always evolving. I think leveraging technology is a great thing. Hopefully the Air Force does that the right way. And I think they're having some big wins there. And we don't want to be cutting corners and, and pumping pilots out too soon, but that's another conversation. Out of pilot training, you went to the F-15C, is that correct? I did, yeah. I went to the Eagle at um, Kadena. Okay. What <clears throat> what year did you graduate pilot training? Uh, 8503 was my class number, so 85. Okay, and I assume, I mean, that time frame, you know, the Eagle is probably like the Raptor or the F-35 today. Uh, that had to be like the prize fighter coming out of UPT, I would imagine. It was that and the F-16. They were both pretty new. Uh, so, you know, to, that's, if you wanted to fly fighters, most people wanted to be in one of those two. Yeah. Okay. And so 85, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, I've had commanders, you know, joking about coming up initial fighting the Soviets um, and, and holding them back. That time frame showing up at Kadena, again, slightly different. Uh, well, it depends on, well, your adversary of the day. Now we're kind of leaning back towards a near peer threat, such as Russia or China, if you want to look at it that way. Versus, predominantly, my career was all spent in counterinsurgency operations, close air support, uh, things like that. Yeah. So vastly, you know, it, it's funny how it swings. What was a day in the life in the squadron back yeah. back in the late eighties? Yeah, it was. We were still training for the Cold War, and this was just as the F fifteen and F sixteen had come into operational deployment. In fact, I think some bases had not yet operationalized those two airplanes. They were still being deployed. So we were there to combat a threat that we knew we were going to be outnumbered. So the Air Force had made a decision, largely through a man named General Creech, that we would give up numerical superiority and we would defeat the threat through technological superiority and better trained pilots. So we were going to put better pilots in better aircraft and we were going to overcome numbers. So we were always fighting a lower tech threat in a 2v4, 2v6, 4v8 kind of scenario. And that's the culture we grew up in. And what helped us was, this was during a transition that we still had, you know, your your crusty old majors and lieutenant colonels that were in the squadron. They were all Vietnam veterans. Yeah. So we had the tremendous benefit of just being around those guys and hearing them talk about combat and what it was like when you're deployed in combat and actually fighting combat. It was, it was really a great time. It really was. And so we could talk for hours on this because what I also saw was during that transition, some of the older guys coming out of Vietnam didn't adapt. So they didn't recognize we had new technology and we were treating our wingmen different. We were giving wingmen more autonomy, which they thought was chaos. They thought, you know, right. can't run an air war that way. And those guys ended up being irrelevant. And yet, if you came with the Vietnam experience and you were able to adapt and incorporate the technology with your experience, those guys were unbeatable. You know, it's interesting. I think I've mentioned this because uh, Dojo, who's actually one of my students when I was a fate, became a Strike Eagle guy, and then transitioned to the F-35. And fast forward, then he's the F-35 demo pilot when I'm the F-16 demo pilot. But we were discussing. So he that was based out at Luke Air Force Base at the time, which had the B course. And he was saying that, you know, they had some of the first F-35 B course students come through, and he was saying that a wingman coming out of the B course in F-35 was equivalent of like a two-ship, or sorry, a four-ship flight lead and like a Viper or a Strike Eagle, something that didn't have all the technology. And granted, it's not, it's not necessarily you're saying that person is better, but the technology yeah. that they're able to leverage. So instead of using those old tactics, well, hey, this yeah. guy's a wingman. He's going to be stuck to my side, and I'm going to tell him what to do. He's kicked out there however far away from his flight lead, and he is making decisions, and he's driving the air war based upon the picture that he's seeing, melding with these fourth-gen Fortune yeah. plus assets. Again, yeah. Different way of thinking it, but you know, it's but, not just a two shut up, sit there and don't say anything. Uh, and it required a different level of leadership. I thought even, you know, as we're transitioning from Vietnam where it was kind of the welded wingman and, you know, you don't do anything till you're cleared 
and we were putting wingmen out light abreast two miles away from us, and they just thought that was anarchy. You know, how are you going to control a gun <laughs> two miles away? Um, and so, yeah, I it it requires a different kind of leadership. You still have a flight lead. He's still directing the air war for his flight. Right. But there's a lot more autonomy, and you're, we were so much more powerful be, because of that. Well, leveraging the technology and the capabilities that you have at hand that are given to you in this day and age, I think makes you stronger if you're able to recognize those and that it might be different and it might be a departure from the way you were brought up or you know the way you were trained. That is one of these struggles, and I kind of I, I keep talking about UPT 2.5. It, it catches a lot of attention and flack, and I think resistance inside Air Force these days. There's some unknowns about it. There are some things like talking a motor. I think they're doing really well. It sounds like they're leveraging technology where, you know, when I was a FAPE, if the weather was bad and you were a student and wanted to go into the simulator and practice instrument approaches because your you know transition sortie canceled, well, that wasn't allowed. That'd be a syllabus deviation, which gets briefed to the two-star. Now you have this multi-million dollar simulator that's sitting vacant that you could utilize and make a better pilot, but you can't do it. So like those things are silly. I'm glad I think they're getting rid of that. Uh, there are some things that I'm skeptical about that after T6 is you get your wings. I do think you know, potentially the Air Force may be playing a numbers game or eventually transitioning to the point where, and, and maybe rightfully so, you can spend six months or nine months in the T6 and then go to the C-17 versus six months in a T6, six months in a T-1 and then go to C-17. Again, looking at maybe slightly different, so long as we're not trying to cut corners and you know just play a numbers game. But the fact that the technology is out there, it's yeah. the VR goggles, you know, yeah. seems, all that stuff is changing. I don't know, have you followed Red 6? Have you heard of them? Well, uh, uh, so Daniel Robinson, he was a tornado driver. It was the first British exchange officer in the Raptor. He, he's here now in the States. He has a company called Red Six, and they're doing this augmented reality. But he's been testing it with his team for the last three years, I think, really. And they just uh, are partnering with Lockheed, I think, for the F-35 and the F-15. But they can go out there and do augmented reality, you know, incorporate it into the, I don't know if it's going to be the Hemix or however they're going to do it. They can go out there and they can fight a Su-35. They can put, you know, it's like the next, I guess, up version of Link 16, where now you're having those adversaries out there, and then you can merge with a augmented reality Su-35 and actually see something across the turn circle, which is wild. Yeah, that's that's pretty so, wild. But yeah, embracing the technology. The technology is changing, so it's interesting to hear that you're parallel. I think a parallel there. I and I they will always be there, right? There's always there's we're changing adapting all the time and the people that are reluctant to see it that don't want to see the changes coming because they're enjoying where they are they finally mastered their current environment right. um those people tend to struggle but whatever the industry i found that in the it industry quite frankly yeah it's always there's people resistant to change right it's, yeah it's a tough it's a tough thing to embrace yeah what was so your time in the Eagle, you spent, I mean, predominantly your entire career, the exception of the Thunderbirds, flying the Eagle, is that correct? Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, CMOS. Yeah. So how did that evolve? Because, again, the Cold War came to an end probably shortly after the first your first assignment. How did you see your time in the Eagle transit, or did it transition at all? Yeah, it transitioned some. Um, so uh, we first conflict we went in uh true conflict was desert storm so you know we had trained in desert storm was pretty much a cold war kind of a fight you know it was floggers and um i think they had some mig-25s and mig-31s maybe a couple su-27s i don't remember um but that was you know still by and large we were doing the technological advantage you know numerical the enemy will have the numerical superiority so that was that pretty much dominated most of the time that I was in. As I began to retire from the Air Force and transition, then some newer kind of threats and environments were coming along. F twenty two, I mean, just as I left. 
I think that in the standard threat now, it just constantly evolves again, technology, it's, you know, an exponential change. So seeing how fast that, you know, getting the iPhone popping up in 2007 to how that's transformed our world just in the last 15 years. Imagine that on the, you know, the tech side or the military tech side for those. Yeah. I thought it was funny. Like, um, you know, when four flight first came out, I was skeptical of it because (laughs) I thought, in no way they can provide all that capability for what was it at the time, like $79 a year or something or right. that, but that's re- it's, it's just gotta be cheap. So I was real, real resistant to it. Then I finally got it cause I flew it a couple of times. I was just amazed at the technology at your fingertips on an iPad. And then years later I was visiting Nellis for some reason. And I go up and look at one of the uh, F-16 cockpits there. And there's an iPad holder, and the guy says, "Yeah, I fly with four flight. Holy right. smoke, fly with iPads and four flights in the Air Force." It, yeah. I mean, the resistance of that, you know, was I, I wouldn't say it was. Uh, there was there was definitely resistance to it because, so as the Viper demo guy, my predecessor, he got approval to buy a mini iPad with government funds, and with the Snacko funds, he could buy his four flight subscription. <laughs> and then, then it slowly started to catch on. So my first year, like I was the only guy at Shaw flying around. I mean, only Viper guy, I mean, period, flying around with an iPad, which was a complete game changer. Like, yeah. and I ended up bringing jets back from Dubai, going to Spangdalem. We had to divert in Siganella and then jump through Italy. And that, you know, flying around in Europe, it's not like just file TACAN to TACAN. Yeah. It's, I mean, for the one-hour flight probably had 70 waypoints. And had I not had that iPad with four flight on it, like, those jets would still be sitting there. There's, like, no way for me to get those things back. <laughs> like, uh, so it was crazy to see just how much that technology has evolved and changed. But I want to jump back. You mentioned Desert Storm. What was the buildup uh, to Desert Storm? What was your experience going through Desert Storm and the day in the life of the guy flying around those days? Yeah, so, you know, we saw that threat coming when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and we, I think we had had rumblings of that was our, if we were going to have a conflict, it was likely going to be in the desert somewhere. And so then that happened, and for, it was really fortunately I was at Holloman because Holloman, New Mexico was a great place to be to fly fighters. However, when Desert Storm kicked off, they decided Langley and Eglin were going to be the two Eagle units that would deploy. So Holloman got left out of that loop. But I got sent over as the one guy that went from Holloman to sit in the uh, in Riyadh um, in the headquarters. I forgot what we called the headquarters unit there. So I was a fight out, uh, okay. fighter duty officer. You know, yeah, probably, so your whole yeah, job like, is you know there's the there's the frag that comes out, but that's built like. I don't know, 18 hours before it's deployed. And then your job is to take it and, you know, make it real time. This tanker fell out and these guys fell out and you're matching tankers and weather and move and all that. I, I really enjoyed it. I got to tell I had a front row seat. Uh, so I, I carried out my flight equipment with me and I would call around Langley and Eglin and say, hey, you know, I got all my flight equipment. I can come fly. <laughs> Usually say some version of pout sand and, you know, do your fighter <laughs> job. <laughs> but yeah. What's funny, uh, I guess, I don't know, they, they call it the Combined Air Operations Center, KAOC? Yeah, they did, the KAOC, you're right. Because okay. yeah. mm-hmm. uh, my last point, so we would rotate, we'd go down there for like two weeks at a time, so we'd just send guys to do their L&O, that's what we call the, you know, liaison officer duty. Uh-huh. And for everyone, you know, you're sitting there, and you're doing, you know, again, you're getting the frago and processing it and coordinating with the unit, making sure that, you know, real-time maintenance that they're going to be able to support it and things like that and, and working. Uh, but I remember, you know, it's like every fighter is represented there. You know, I was sitting next to the Strike Eagle guy and then had a B-1 guy next to me. Then the Navy, they just sent one guy from the boat to be the Navy representative and then, you know, work your way around A-10s and, you know, B-52s. And every, like, Air Force guy is, like, miserable there because they're missing out on dropping bombs and, and doing things. Right. Uh, the Navy guy was so happy. He loved it. He had Wi-Fi. He had his own room. He wasn't hot bunking. You know, he could have three beers a day. He thought it was like the greatest place on earth. Meanwhile, like every Air Force guy's like, get me yeah. out of here, you know. But it was a good, it was a good experience to see how it, see, you know, I guess behind the curtain, how the whole process works. Yeah, yeah. I, I found a question. 
and I got an assist on a mid kill because my my good friend Rick Fellini Clouseau, he he wrote a book called Paul Sign Clouseau. But anyway, I'm in I'm in uh, I'm doing my Fido thing, and you know something's wrong with the frag. So I I called the one unit, and they said no, we don't want to pick up that story. So I called to Eglin and they said, Hey, I need you to pick up this. And they Eglin was just all about it, man. They they were leaning so far forward. They're like, Yep, we'll go. And, you know, Tolini Cluso is gonna be the flight lead. So he goes out on that mission and he kills a MIG. That's so awesome. when he when he lands, I called him back and said, Dude, I get an assist there, okay? <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. You owe me a bottle of scotch at least, you know. Right, yeah. Yeah, what a I mean, what a different time. I know that, it's funny just to see, you know, I mean, I guess for the past 30 years have been over there and obviously, you know, there's a lot of politics go into it, but how that war has ebbed and flowed and, and what it is today and, you know, hopefully not what it is tomorrow. But, I, you know, I think now the hornet's nest has been kicked. You can't really, can't really put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We've yeah. kind of stirred the pot there just a little bit, but another day, another story. Um, so I will say, you know, amazing career flying fighters and i know you were fortunate enough to get out of the eagle and get into the mighty viper at one point so I, that was probably a really nice transition i would imagine yeah i i liked it you know uh the, you know there's some good rivalry between uh the vipers and the eagles by the way when i was at holloman every year we would invite in the winter time like hill and some other units because we always had great weather and we had overland supersonic ranges at holloman we had more fun with dissimilar, you know, air combat fighting and huge forces. It was, yeah, it wasn't on the scale of a red flag, but we had huge wars out over those Holloman ranges. And then we'd come back into the bar on, you know, whatever night it was and just rage for weeks on end. That was, that was some fun times, man. Good flying, great bar time, and obviously a lot of rivalry between the Eagles and the Viper units. Like back in the good old days, I went so I went to the centrifuge in Holloman before they moved it to Wright Pat, and then I went back for the air show in 2018. You know, they moved the Viper majority Oops. of the Viper B course down to Holloman. Oh, and really? Is it still there? It, there now? It's still there. Yeah, because you know the Raptors went there, and they built you know all brand new facilities after the F117s had been gone for a few years, and then you know the Raptors were there for like two years and like nah, we're out of here there was a, the army the way it works with the airspace at least nowadays the army has a lot of control yeah. and they can they can snatch the airspace back when, yeah. while you're holding yeah. short and so i think holman still battles that yeah but i do remember i was sitting in a briefing room and just the whole building you know it's like boom it just shakes uh and it was friday and you know they want everyone to go supersonic at least on friday to boom the town because they still can do that supersonic over land and they right. want to keep everyone at Holloman and Alamogordo used to the fact that fighters can go supersonic over land because that just doesn't exist. Yeah, you doesn't. can do it over the Nellis ranges, but no one's living yeah. underneath those. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a different, uh, different world out, out there. It's nice. Yeah. It's down the it middle of nowhere, a, but it was a great, great place to fly fighters. Now I was single at the time, so it was not a great place for, Single guy living, which is what took me to be the F-15 demo pilot. So I, I kind of share that with you. I know you were the Viper demo pilot. I was the Eagle demo pilot for uh, for a while at a Holloman. Did, and was that that was the where the because that day East Coast and West Coast? I would imagine. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we had an East Coast guy and a West Coast guy. Yep. Were you? Uh, this be interesting. So you know, when my time, my only duty was to be the demo pilot. Uh, Viper had a mishap in 2000, and while this didn't change it immediately, it was a contributing factor that they eventually changed it. When you were the demo pilot, that's your only job was to be the demo pilot. Because talking to some of the sim guys at Shaw who had been demo pilots in the 90s, because he's doing, you know, he's practicing his demo, he's flying instructional sorties, he's in an ORE, and then he's packing up and going on the road. Just a lot, lot happening. Um, going into it, and they've said, "Hey, you know what? Like, let's just remove, like, the demo." My mind, it's not like any ninety-nine percent of pilots could fly the demo. Yeah, uh, the F-16 is very high G intensive. You know, you're you normally not pulling nine Gs all the time in the Viper, even though it can. 
but it's just something you're just doing different that it's good to practice and yeah. be in the uh, right mindset when you're doing it. So they, they said, Hey, you know what? That's, that's it. That's all you're going to do. Where I imagine you were probably doing other jobs while being the demo pilot. Yeah, that's probably a good transition they made. Uh, but it wasn't that way during my time. It was, it was an additional duty. Really. And I loved it because I was single living in Holland, but every weekend I would go to an air show and hit you know, five EF yeah. back on Monday and do the, you know, operational stuff. Yeah, it's perfect to be able to escape. It, I mean, for me, it was an amazing job. Obviously, was, yeah. getting to fly some really cool places, getting to do cool things. Um, it's just, man, I normally. And I liked you know, it. Really? As you know, you would go and the jet teams would be there and they would have all this structure and support and all these yeah. duties and a minute by minute schedule. And you'd be going, eh, I fly at one and you know. right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's like to me, that was the best part because, yeah. you know, at, you had your team of maintainers, you had your jets, and you kind of king of the castle. And the, you had to be there, obviously, be there for the show and do the show. Uh, but it was up to you and the team to kind of manage your schedule. And it wasn't the, we got to herd 100 cats because obviously you did that big yep. time yep. as a Thunderbird lead. Yeah. Just a completely different environment. And I never did that side of it, but. For me, I just know I really enjoy the ability to have that flexibility while I go out there and really do some cool stuff. Not saying the Thunderbirds don't, but again, oh. you're dealing with a yeah. team of yeah. 90 or so people. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that too, the, the sort of autonomy. Because, you know, as the demo pilot, you had your narrator that would go with and he'd fly the spare. And then well, I think three maintenance people would always meet you at the show side if I remember three or four. And you were this all little, you know, five person entity and you were sort of king of the domain of that as the demo pilot. So you just had a lot of autonomy and it was, it was great fun. It was, it was really, really enjoyed that time period. It was re- how far, what, what gap did you have between being the, uh, F-15 demo pilot and going to the Thunderbirds? Uh, I want to say it was about a 10 year gap, maybe 10 or 12 year gap. Oh, yeah. wow. I was a captain as the F-15 demo pilot, and then obviously Lieutenant Colonel Quinn went to the Thunderbirds. Yeah, I mean, they're, I think Primo, he was the Viper PACAF demo guy, and he's now the narrator for the Thunderbirds. And, you know, occasionally guys do that demo role and then then jump to the Thunderbirds because they get a, a taste for the air show world. But it's busy, and I think if you're a single guy being able to escape Holloman, like, that's perfect. But I imagine doing, if you were married with kids doing demo and then turn right in to go do like the Thunderbirds, yeah. that's, a, that's a, that's a lot of time away from home for sure. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't do that when I was with the Thunderbirds. We'd have some guys from the demo teams that would apply to the team. And I don't know if it's still this way, but by and large, the Thunderbird team selects the next Thunderbird team. Yeah. It has to go up through all the general approvals and all that, but I never saw them override the decision you would make at the team level. But we we wouldn't take them because, it, and it, I'd be really candid with them when they'd interview. I'm like, dude, you you don't want to do this. You know, back to back like this, you need a gap, go back and get regrade again. And then if you're right. still interested down the road, come try it. But hard on you, hard on your family, you lose some perspective. So we, we tended to stay away from that. A good thing. I think the, I mean, I looked, I separated active duty at the end of demo but just in, I did about two and a half years. The Viper got a new up, got several new upgrades. Some of the tactics had changed. And while like, yeah, sure, like I could absolutely go back and do that. If you're away from that too long, yeah, I mean, it's obviously just it gets much more challenging to jump back into it. And again, I think as the technology evolves, tactics are evolving, the threat is evolving. There's a, a learning curve. Yeah, you know, it's still you know it's either getting steep or it's still there that you're having to do that to be regrade as you say to go out there and really do the job that you're getting paid to do. Yeah, and and to not forget that this isn't what the military was is about. You know, the recruiting tool is helpful for public affairs, but it's not the core of what the Air Force is about. And we we try to never forget that, especially when I was with the Thunderbirds. That you know, it really isn't about us. Or the Thunderbirds, it's about the Air Force and how we represent right. that. And it's I'm sure you, easy to lose track of that if you do it too long. 
Yeah, hundred percent. I'm sure you got asked it a bunch too. I mean, I had people like, well, how do I get to be the demo pilot? Like, well, that's not why I joined the air force. I didn't join the air force. Like I'm going to go be the demo pilot. You know, I, w- I joined cause I wanted to go be a fighter pilot, go out there and serve my nation, do that. Like, that's why you join and just happen to be right place, right time, right qualifications. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like that'd be an interesting thing to do. I'll go do that for a bit. Like yeah. you don't join to go be, go be the demo pilot. That's not going to work out well for you. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Your time on the Thunderbirds, um, so you did two seasons. I think that's that's typically like the normal, yep. yeah, normal flow. There's occasionally some weird things that happen back and forth. But um, how was that experience being the Thunderbirds lead versus being the, the Eagle demo pilot? Yeah, it was totally different, like we just talked about. Um, but I have to tell you, it was fantastic. I I loved being Thunderbird one. I, I loved being ripped up in red, white, and blue and flying red, white, and blue jets. I came from a very patriotic family. And to be able to travel around the nation just corner to corner, I think we went to Canada and Mexico too, and represent the, the power, pride, and precision of the Air Force was, I just, I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved being a commander. I loved flying the, the Viper. I thought it was such a great jet, reliable what we needed highly maneuverable fun um it's just it was just fantastic i I tell people it's one of the hardest things to describe and i explain it by saying you know just imagine what you think it would be like it was all that and a lot more (laughs) (laughs) that's That's really cool i before we hit record we were talking about so for those listening, what you do in a demo jet now nowadays is you zeroize your altimeter. Air show performers zeroize their altimeters, meaning you know, you might be sitting at you know, a thousand feet, the field might be sitting at a thousand feet above sea level, mean sea level, MSL, but you'll wind the altimeter down to zero. And that way when you're doing your maneuvers, you know how high you are actually above ground level, AGL. Um, and this was something I know during your time there was a mishap up in Boise. Can yeah. you talk to me a little bit about that mishap and some of the lessons learned that came from that? Because again, I think yeah, it's sure. interesting to to see when that mishap happened, how you know, long yeah. into the air show world we've been doing this. Yeah, it was at Mountain Home, Idaho, actually. And um, it was my team. It was the second year I was commander. It was the 50th anniversary of the Thunderbirds and the 100th anniversary of Powered Flights. We had a really, really busy schedule. Uh, but a good one. We were we were having a great year up to that point. It happened in September, but it's a common um, mistake for people to misread that accident report and think it was about zeroing the altimeter. That really wasn't what the problem was. We were allowed to, and we did zero our altimeter to the nearest thousand feet. We were at, I think that day the density altitude or the field elevation was two or three thousand feet. It might have been four. I, I can't remember. Um, and so we would zero it to the nearest whole number, like 4,000 or whatever, right? Which is still, that's all you can do. Sometimes you physically can't get the altimeter down to zero. Yeah. That's still, I guess uh, that would be same today, like at a field at 5,000 feet. Yeah. Like you, yeah. you can't spin it to zero. The problem that we had and that ended up being a factor in the mishap was when we would go do our over the top, uh, maneuvers. And you remember this from your demo days. I don't. Did you have to call out your altitudes to your safety observer when you were doing? I the- did. Yep. And that was out of the mishap. I guess probably uh, Thunderbird mishap, but really the Viper demo mishap in 2000, where it was an over-the-top maneuver, and there was not anyone there to call the numbers out to. Ah, okay. Yeah. So we would have to call out. But here, here's the thing: we would have to call it out in. AGL, right? So instead of just just calling out the round number on the altimeter because you zeroed it out and you knew that you had to be at what would it is it thirty five hundred? Is that what you had to hit on top for? Yeah, like men that get thirty five. Yeah. So instead of just saying you know seventy five hundred, we had to do it in AGL. So you'd have to go up, and you're never at round numbers, right? You're at like you know seventy eight hundred. So you'd have to go. Um, you know, five's on top, at, and in your mind, you're going to 78, but I'm at what, are 78 minus, well, five's on top at 38, right? And I thought that was just ridiculous when I first came onto the team, because I'd been an F-15 demo pilot, and I, I regret this to this day. So I went to my leadership and said, hey, this is really a bad idea. 
you know, we should just call out the number that's on the altimeter. And everybody knows what you zeroed the altimeter to, and you got a safety observer, and that number's not right. And I had a great boss at the time, and he said, Spad, you know how hard it is to change the Thunderbird regulation? You know, I mean, it's got to go, at the time, it had to go all the way up to Comac, yeah. you know, the four-star. And he said, so, you know, if you really believe that this is that hard to do, okay, I'll support you. Fry it up the chain, and we'll go up, and, you know, sometime in the middle of your season, it'll probably come back approved. And I thought about it. And he goes, or you could realize that we've been doing it this way for 20 years and nobody's ever had an incident. So maybe you guys can just suck it up and, you know, learn how to do it. And I was like, uh, okay, yeah, okay. I, you know, I, I, I get it. So I didn't press the point, even though I really believed it should be changed. I, I, I'll regret that for the rest of my life. Now, thankfully, it didn't cost anybody, you know, their life. But I know that if I'd have pushed it, my boss would have supported me and we'd have had that change. Yeah much sooner than we did. It took a mishap to have that change. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that uh, because I think everyone probably can put themselves in those in that scenario where the path of least resistance more or less, but especially in the Air Force, my problem with it, which uh, there was a good period there pushing things down to the lowest level. And I do, I, I this still kind of gets me, like you're the subject matter expert in that arena, but how difficult it is to make that change. Like that shouldn't be a barrier to it. Now, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole nother episode in itself. You know, that's how the bureaucracy works and does, but really, you know, ideally, this is like, if you have an OG, a Colonel, a wing commander, um, and that's why you have to push it all the way up to Comac. Same with like Viper demo, you know, he owns them all. Like, you know what? You have a wing commander that has, you know, 40% of the nation's seed capability at his fingertips. You don't trust him to make this you know, change. And again, I, I digress. That is interesting to hear. I didn't realize, I thought it was, uh, again, I misread it, a zero rise and altimeter. Because I did one show in Rio Negro, Colombia, which the density altitude, you know, like one day was like 12,000 feet. Oof. So there was no way of uh, rolling that thing back. And again, when you're flipped upside down, for those listening, being able to look at the round dial, your altimeter there, and just quickly read off of it. At least for me, simpleton, that's about as much brain bites as I have to yeah. spare. So having to do math, inverted, you know, pulling through, pointing at the ground, talking the radio just wasn't going to happen. I ended up changing my show a good bit and omitting some of the over-the-top maneuvers. Well, I mean, again, you're just like, you're padding your numbers so much, the jet just starts getting sluggish. You're like, is it like is this worth it? No, people just want to hear loud jet noise. Again, easier when it's just one jet out there versus changing a whole routine. Six jets, but I don't yeah, know. it's yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, it really was a lesson learned for me that um, the the pain would have been worth the effort, right? So I got it. It's hard, but you know, I I really did think it should be changed, and I just went, ah, okay, they've been doing it for twenty years. Eh, okay, you know, so anyway, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, I mean, fair enough. I know you're going to say that. I guess my thing is, I guess how many times, like, how many times do you have to go to bat for something you're super passionate about, and how much energy do you have when you're managing and leading 90 people in the show season? So, I would say just to give you, you know, a, a little bit. Like, I get it. Hindsight's 2020. Yeah, if that hadn't yeah. happened, you wouldn't have thought about it again. You know. Yeah, but, um, yeah, it's true. We do create, we do create a lot of barriers. Some right, some wrong. It's finding that balance. Yeah. So the interesting thing about that is the the Air Force accident team came in, and they were looking at the first thing they wanted to look at to see is if the guy was a cheater, you know, or no, it was actually our number six guy, and they were going to look to see if he had pulled through knowingly being lower than than he was. So they went back and looked at all his tapes, and the guy was amazing at how consistent he would hit that number. He would hit his on top. We called it ringing the bell. You go up. You meet your minimum altitude and your minimum airspeed, and that's called ringing the bell. You've rung the bell, now you can pull through. And he would ring the bell within about 50 feet of consistency, and he never cheated. They ne they went through all his tapes, and they never found a case where he you know, him a little bit low. And so they ruled that out. And then what it turned out to be was um, we were at a higher density altitude that day, and they think it was a matter of 
he his mental clock tells him it's about time to roll and pull. But because it's higher density altitude, he was lower, and he glances down his altimeter and he sees what he expects to see. You know that confirmation bias thing. So right. he's expecting to see seventy-five because it feels about right. He glances down and sees it's actually sixty-five. So that's what they think was the cause of it. Who is he calling those numbers out? Is that the the DO of the squadron? Yeah, the operations officer of the Thunderbird operation, Thunderbird Seven is also the safety officer. So he's on the mic and you know, on the radios and watching the show and listening for those numbers. Yeah. And, uh, it's it's um, it's great. I know, like, the video obviously is out there, him ejecting, like, again. Amazing. Uh, yeah, safe, safe ejection. I think, I don't know, I'm, he was an IFF commander when I was going through and um, or right before I went through. But I know he... he talked about a little bit but he was an eagle guy yeah i think you can see in one of the videos him going for the handles on the side of the seat yeah versus between his legs you know it's just like i mean it's a split second but um yeah that, that negative transfer like going back to the habits like it's so scary i mean it worked out because i think he was right there within a, a oh of he was out of the envelope oh uh, he was well out of the envelope it's a miraculous story that you know he ejected like eight-tenths of a second or something like that before his plane hit the ground, but because he was so horizontal and his seat didn't have time to deploy, so he hits on that, and his he hits more, you know, with a forward trajectory than a vertical, and that ends up saving his life. Gosh, yeah. Well, it's amazing. Uh, and, again, there are a lot of, like with any mishap, there are a lot of lessons to, to learn and pull from, and I think it's one of the, like, very, obviously very qualified highly capable, you know, phenomenal fighter pilot, um, which you, I can see. I can see all those things like being, I can see myself sitting in his seat. And I think that's what's important. I know what you're doing today, your current role, you know, and, and obviously more ways than one, helping people make smart decisions and be better aviators, be better pilots as they go out there and make, you know, the best decisions possible with the best knowledge that they possibly can have out there. So I think that's really, really good. I imagine that that's got to be rewarding. Yeah, I I love doing it. I feel fortunate to be here. And it's one of those cases where, one of those things where I feel like the experiences that I've had in my life from the Air Force and I got my start in GA. So I understand the culture and I'm, I flew GA all through my Air Force career. So it just feels like it's blending nicely and uh, it's it's rewarding work. It feels meaningful. And so, but it's, you know, it's safety work. So you spend some time in the safety world and, you know, you never really know how it affects, you don't know the accident you prevented if you prevented any. So that, that's, you know, that can always be a, a little bit uh, tough. Yeah. I think, you know, I, so I was a chief of wing safety or the, I was wing safety officer for prior to demo, which was good. And it was fun to go out there and talk to GA pilots and, I was saying our one of our military airspaces or MOAs that we use all the time at Shaw is a Bulldog MOA over by yeah. Augusta. And I tell the story to all these pilots who typically just go blitzing right through a MOA because it's legal and they can do it. Um, the story of, you know, 17-year-old me who's going cross-country, bebopping through the Bulldog MOA, and I was doing flight following. But I went to Augusta and I came back. But in the process, I stopped at one little airfield in between Atlanta and Augusta. Then I fast forward like 15 years, and now I'm doing 500 knots at about a thousand feet, and I like roll up as I'm a red air, and I'm right over top of this airfield. And I was like the same airfield that you know, 17 year old me is probably bebopping around completely clueless that there's eight jets zip around here. That one, their radar is just sorting them out or filtering them out because it thinks it's chaff. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and like hopefully, at least one person might have listened to it, and then they don't go blitzing through a mo, but you'll never know. You'll never know yep. if you had any impact or not, which I guess is a good thing. Tough to do. Yeah. Well, sir, as we kind of wrap up here, I always like to ask, you know, if you found 15, 16, 17-year-old, you walking down the street, is there any advice you would give him, say, hey, don't do this, do this, or go this path? Yeah, man, that's a that's a good question. Uh Sometimes I give guests warning that I'm going to ask this. <laughs> Other times, it's just uh, here you go. Here's yeah. uh, 
Yeah. Here's a fastball or a curveball. You know, it's just been such a fabulous time, the time I spent in the Air Force. Um, I I have to say, I didn't go into it with an enormous amount of confidence. I thought at any given time they were going to kick me out or, no, I wasn't (laughs) going to. So some of it, you know, would just be, hey, man, you, you can do this. You know, this is achievable. This is within your reach. Uh, and I would say that to a lot of younger people who think, you know, I, I hear them talking about, oh, I could never do that. Hey, yes, you could. Yeah, you could. This is well within your reach. Yeah. No, I think that's it's good. It's tough. Um, I think to always, especially in such a competitive environment, you think like, oh, I'm, I shouldn't be here. I'm going to, I'm not going to make it, but you just got to go out there and do your best. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Awesome. Well, sir, thank you very much. I appreciate you joining me on the podcast. It was fun chatting. I'd like to have you back on here again. If you, you got some time. Yeah. I'd love to do it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.